The following contains adult language, content, and descriptions of actions not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Guru Presario Media presents the Guru Presario Podcast, starring me, Mal Sanchez. The word entrepreneur gets thrown around a lot, but it's defined by very few. Join me as I sit down with those that I've come to know, and through the art of conversation, we can all learn a little something from the nature of our work. Let's start the show. All right, guys, episode 17 of the Guru Presario podcast. I am here with my new friend, Jim Moore of GQ Magazine. Um, we're filming from Palm Springs, California. Yeah, right, Jim? Yeah, right, correct, right. Jim? That's right. Thanks for having me. I'm in Cali, and uh, starting. To, it's heating up. It's starting to get hot. It's those uh, desert summers kind of creeping in. But I, I bet it uh, is. Love it. I know originally when we spoke, I had sent you a message on Instagram, and the original plan was to actually shoot a podcast in Brooklyn, uh, where you know you're currently stationed at. However, pandemic hit, turned things upside down, and now you're in Palm Springs. I'm in Texas. I haven't been back to New York in probably a good year and a half. Um, but yeah. So excited to get back. I mean, I'm really thankful to have this house for many decades, and it was a vacation home for me, but just been hunkered down here for a year, and now itching to get back. Probably next month, we'll head back to Brooklyn. I'm excited about it, and you should come too. Oh, I will. I'll be there. I'm supposed to. I plan. I just spoke with a good friend of mine, Faraz. We had him on the podcast last week. We'll be up there. So I'll be up there sometime in the next two months. Um, we'll definitely have to do lunch somewhere. Um, Absolutely. Looking forward to it. As I do with every guest, Jim, I want to give you a brief moment to just introduce yourself, where you're from, and kind of where you're at now. Okay. So my name is Jim Moore. I'm the uh, GQ Creative Director at Large, and I am a creative director, independent creative director at this point in my career, and can't wait to tell you all the stories and all the things that have been going on. But I'm originally from St. Paul, Minnesota. So, you know, I don't know if you know anything about the Twin Cities, but, you know, everybody, whether they're from St. Paul or whether they're from anywhere else that's not Minneapolis, they say they're from Minneapolis because St. Paul is like the podunk town. You know, St. Paul is like on the other side of the river. That's what other people say. I say St. Paul is great because that's where I'm from. And um, there's so many charming things about it, but it is about half the size of Minneapolis. So you have these two cities that are just separated by the Mississippi River and being a young kid, I always wanted to go to Minneapolis because Minneapolis felt like the really big city, you know, skyscrapers and more concrete and more, you know, more uh, kind of ways to fantasize that maybe I was in New York City. But yeah, that's where I'm from. And I crawled my way to New York City when I was a young kid. What, uh, what initially attracted you to New York City? <laughs> uh, the fact that I could not follow my dreams in where I was living at the, at the point. Uh, and my mom was incredible. She was very instrumental and she said it kind of broke her heart to do this, but she said, you know, you got to get out of here. You know, your dreams and aspirations are much bigger than this little town. So, you know, she slipped me like, you know, the money for a plane ticket and I took off for New York and found myself a little school that would teach me, um, about fashion because I knew nothing about it. 
and I knew I didn't want to be a fashion designer and I knew I didn't want to work in retail, but I did know because I was in art school for a while after high school that I wanted to do something in fashion. I had a voracious appetite for periodicals, specifically uh, fashion magazines. Um, my mom and dad loved magazines. They had tons of subscriptions and, you know, my dad was more kind of the, the time life guy and my mom was more of the Better Homes and Garden McCall's kind of lady, right? So, and then I was there with the like, you know, the sophisticated magazines like GQ and Vogue and I'd go into my room and just kind of get lost in them. And that, I, unknowingly, that would, that would lead me to New York and a career in magazines. And I was always enchanted by the pictures and, and they always gave me goosebumps and I always got excited about what I saw and I always open, and I still to this day open a magazine very gingerly and I have to go from front to back, page by page and really kind of, um, you know, swallow it up and, and see what I can take from it. But I think, I think it was really, you know, the day I started my, my schooling in New York and figuring out what school was best for me. Like I didn't want to go to FIT because that was more of a design school. So I found this little tiny school, which was called Toby Coburn School for Fashion Careers. And it was in on the, the Upper East Side. Okay. What's that? In, I was going to ask, it was in the city? You said Upper East Side. It was in the city. And, you know, I say the name to people and they kind of chuckle. But in, the, in those days, it was a very small school. It was above the old Tom Ford boutique on Madison Avenue, above the Prada store on Madison Avenue. It was the second floor, you know, less than 100 kids. And I did my research. And, you know, there's no internet in those days. This is 1977, Okay really dating myself. So I'm in New York. It's 1977. It's the, you know, the son of Sam is still loose. The <laughs> blackout <laughs> happens. Studio 54 opens. It's a pretty epic time to be in New York. You, you write know? about this in your book, right? I mean, I, I've yeah, I write about it. Yeah. I write about it. And so I, I head to this, this school that I found in the back of Mademoiselle magazine because no internet means how do you do research on what school to go to in New York city? If you don't want to be, fashion designer, but you want to be in fashion and learn about it. I knew nothing about fashion, except I knew that I liked to, to dress up. Right. And so I, I looked at these little articles and it was like, luckily Mademoiselle had done a feature kind of connected into an advertising uh, situation where they were breaking down the fashion schools in New York and saying, if you want to do this, go to FIT. If you want to do this, go to Parsons. If you want to do this, go to Pratt. And then down at the bottom, because they probably didn't spend a lot of money with the magazine on advertising, right. was this little logo called Toby Coburn School for Fashion Careers. And underneath it says, do you want a, do you want a career in um, fashion magazines? And I was like, that's it. I have to go there. That's, that's my ticket. And so I just, I don't, I look back at it a couple years later and I was like, how did I do that? I guess I just put blinders on and headed to New York and got an internship at GQ. And that was kind of, that's kind of how it started. Right. And I, I remember reading in your book, and I think it's important to emphasize this because there's probably a lot of young people out there that are thinking, okay, if I'm currently at a position where it's not entirely the position I want to be in, what can I do to um, to put myself in the right place? And in your book, you you wrote about being, uh, being in a position that you were filling envelopes, right? <laughs> 
or you, yes. you were, yes. ideally you weren't creative director, you weren't styling, but you would stay late at the office yeah. and help the yeah. creative director with the shoots after six o'clock, five o'clock. Yes. I, you know, something that really pains me is when I talk to young people who are not following their dreams, they have a dream inside of them, but they're going somewhere else because, you know, maybe their family told them to do that, or maybe it's more money or whatever. And that was never, I was never interested in that. I was never interested in my family getting involved in what my career should be. I was never worried um, that I wouldn't, you know, make a living someday. I really wanted to do something I loved. And I think I, I, I got that from my dad a little bit. My dad was a happy guy, but I just got the feeling that his work was a little bit of drudgery. And, right. you know, thinking about how much time you spend it at your, at your work, um, I wanted to love my job. And I also, was also a creative guy, so I wanted to do something creative. So I just, um, I took this internship. So basically when I was at the school and I was about six months in, I see a little index card on the bulletin board it says internship at GQ I just rip it off there I go to GQ they hire me basically on the spot and I work from two o'clock to five o'clock every day in the it was called the promotional department then basically the business side of the magazine right. stuffing envelopes and then really over the course of the, the first couple of weeks I started to ingratiate myself with the fashion editors and at that point you know, it was kind of this era in GQ where it was spin the globe. Like, where should we go now? It's like, well, let's do a, a khaki story. Okay, let's go to Africa, you know, or like, <laughs> let's do a color story. Let's go to India. You know, it was kind of, it was kind of like, let's match the clothes to some faraway place that would, would be the perfect location. So they were always packing these giant trunks and they everything had to be, you know, labeled and numbered. So I just would stay till, you know, nine o'clock, midnight, whatever, every night, help them with that. And then I just, I feel like over time, I just became indispensable. I just became part of the fashion department and whatever they needed, I was there for, whether it be organizing the sock drawer or whatever, and I did it all for free. And so when Condé Nast um, purchased GQ, which is right around that time, it was owned by Esquire before, then uh, I was able to pivot into a full-time job not, not, not far after that. There was about a six-month lag where Condé Nast wanted to kind of leave everyone in place and check it out. What did we buy for, like, you know, very little money? Because it had been, it had been for, GQ had been for sale for a while, and for some reason people didn't really want it. I don't know why, but Condé Nast picked it up for a dollar, and they, um, What changes you know, did they implement to, I mean... Were, were you part of that movement to really bring Condé Nast into what what it is now with GQ? No, I was just I was just there when it happened. So I started my internship in March, and on let's call it April first, sometime in April, Condé Nast bought. So I was I was actually working for Esquire because Esquire owned GQ, even though Esquire had already sold Esquire. So Esquire Inc., which was really trying to pivot away from periodicals and pivot into um, textbooks and law book publishing and all of that, they really they wanted to unload GQ. They didn't want to be in, in the magazine business anymore. So Condé Nast came in, bought GQ for not a lot of money, and I was there when it happened. So I became part of the, the hiring freeze. Like, you know, we love you we'd love you to pack trunks all summer. So I'm graduating at this point. We'd love you to, we'd, so I guess it's the second year of, cause I went to, it was a two year schooling. We want you to 
pack trunks for free forever, but we can't do that. And we also can't keep you on. But, you know, they're going to watch They're going to move us to the Condé Nast building. They're going to watch us for six months. And then you'll be you'll get a call from us. So I took a job at Macy's, which I didn't really like. And um, but it was a good job. I was a sales, you know, which location associate. in the city? What's that? Which location in the city? Yeah, the big one yeah. on 34th Street. And, you know, I started to move over the six months. I started to move up very quickly. I started as a sales associate and then I was a department manager. Then they wanted to put me in the buying program. And I was like, with all due respect, and, you know, I do everything to the best of my ability, work overtime, whatever, but I'm not interested in retail. So I was, I was nervous. I was nervous that maybe that GQ would forget about me. And, um, but they called me six months later and they were like, the hiring freeze is over and you're going to be our first, you know, Amazing. new kid. So and that's that was the- it. So January 80 was my, right after New Year's, I started on January 80, full time. How would you say, um, how does one create indispensability, right? If that's a word, becoming mm-hmm. indispensable, what, what are the actions that, you know, for instance, you took to really make, make that point? I mean, it's that really old-fashioned term that no one uses anymore and probably no one knows that probably my, wasn't even my generation. It was my mom's generation, but it's, it's gumption. You know that word gumption? I'm not familiar. You're not familiar. So gumption is that thing that, that it's basically drive. It's basically the thing that keeps you going. It's the thing that makes you want to be indispensable. Because So what I was doing at GQ, there's two ways to look at it. So there's one way to look at it like, oh, this is really like grunt work, you know, manual labor, packing these things, being really meticulous, cleaning the closet, vacuuming the closet, straightening everyone's desk. But I, my interpretation of it, because I wanted this so badly as a career, was all these things that I'm doing are going to help the magazine look better. So it's almost like who's the person who lays out all of Martha Stewart's ingredients? You know, so she can make the perfect souffle, right? Right. So without that person, she can't make the perfect souffle. So I always saw myself as that person. Now, if you asked me to work with a mechanic and clean engines, that wouldn't interest me. (laughs) So I was, I was definitely, um, (laughs) I was definitely in the lane I wanted to be in. I was pinching myself because I was at the center of the GQ fashion department. And, you know, I had kind of gotten what I set out to get. And a lot of it was luck, but a lot of it was perseverance. So there's no, you know, you'll probably hear me say this a hundred times over the next hour, but there's no shortcuts and the hustle is real. Right. This is true. Um, a lot of, a lot of the things that I tell when I, when I mentor, I'll mentor young guys every, you know, every couple of months, um, is of course the important the important piece to life is following passion right but you have to keep that curiosity rolling right because in my opinion you could be passionate about something for you know six months to a year and then that kind of becomes boring so in the importance of curiosity and persistence and perspectives what do you have to say about that so curiosity didn't didn't come to me automatically what came to me was this midwestern kind of like um, super organized, people pleaser, you know, but as far as curiosity, yes, curiosity for a specific lane, let's say, specific, um, 
you know, obviously my repertoire has opened up quite a bit since those days, but in those days it was, you know, how do I land the job? How do I impress the people? What are my skills? I have no skills. I lived, lived in a suburbs of St. Paul, Minnesota, nothing to show them that the, there's no reason they should hire me over someone who, whose parents work in fashion or, you know, the, the intern of a designer or whatever, there's no reason they should hire me. So I have to, what, what can I do to, to impress them? Well, first of all, I found out that they're a very down to earth group of people and, um, they were, it was easy for me to integrate myself into them and, you know, stay quiet, nose to the grind, grindstone to the, to the road and also give them more than they expect you know, always make sure you're going like, you know, giving them the 120%, not just the 100%. And I think that's super important. I mentor a lot of young people now, and I work with a lot of companies that have young people. And I try to, you know, not preach, but, but teach them how to develop these skills and to, you know, feel good about what they're doing and also to not be imposters, you know, to, to be true to what they really want to do and not just be, not just be dialing it in. And I think uh, the pandemic has been really hard for that because a lot of people are, you know, a little bit lost because we don't have the camaraderie of an office situation. But if you're, if, 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 if what you're doing is authentic to who you are, authenticity is a big part of it, then the curiosity will come because I'm someone who asks a lot of questions and probably in the early, very early stages of my career, a lot of people weren't that interested in answering my questions. So it was, um, you, you know, it's like they, I was thrown into the fire, but then there were those people that did answer my questions and those people turned into my mentors. So I, I love, I, I love that part of, of my job. I love um, uh, helping people find out what their vocational goals are. I think that's sometimes that's the hardest thing. The easiest thing is going after it. The hardest thing is like doing some soul searching and really figuring out what is it that I want to do. Take all the, take everything out of the equation except your passion. And once you find your passion, even though you're like, wow, this is going to be a struggle and I'm going to probably have to get a second job or I'm you know, do it. That's when you know it's right. Right. You know, don't do anything. Don't do anything for money. Don't do anything for money ever. Money is a byproduct. Right. When you become a pro, the money will come in. But don't. That's an that's an imposter. Right. No, I agree with you on that. Fully sensed. Um, passion before paycheck is what I say. Yeah. Um, which is kind of you know when I started my my career, my my background's in finance. So when I moved to New York, I was really pursuing the idea of working on Wall Street. So I worked with a brokerage there. We were selling high yield bonds. And then ultimately, I don't know what it was, maybe a year into it, I hadn't, it's like a switch. And I was like, I'm not necessarily passionate about this. So I began pursuing media, of course, and, and going that route. But um, what about perspective, Jim? Um, when we think of, you know, when, someone like yourself, you're interacting with people like Justin Bieber, uh, Kanye West, big celebrities on a, whether it's weekly or monthly, how do you allow yourself to come back to build perspective on what exactly you're doing and the message you're trying to put out when you're so involved and being so busy with high profile individuals? Well, you know, high profile individuals are kind of just like you and I, they just, you know, it depends on what level fanboy you are. Right. right. So I'm not a fanboy. I'm not, I don't get in, 
they don't get nervous in front of celebrities. I kind of see everybody as the same. And, um, you know, I tend to, I photographed probably not a lot of people you could say their name that I haven't worked with at some point. Of course, you have your favorites, but, you know, the luck, the, the really blessed thing for me is that whether it's just a one day shoot or whether it's an ongoing uh, relationship as a friend or getting to dress them is like, you know, there are few, very few bad apples, you know, and I think it's like when people get to the top of their level, whether it be a, in, um, in sports or in Hollywood or in the music scene, it's like they're there for, they're there for a reason, you know? And so working with a level talent is a, is, you know, is something that gets me really, really excited. And I'm very, um, you know, every, every, I think, you, you, I think you'll get this from a lot of people who are in similar, a similar position as mine, is that every shoot you do, every situation you get into, you, you get those butterflies because you want it, the pictures to be great. Not that you're, oh, I'm working with, right. you know, maybe Obama was the one who made me the most kind of excited, nervous, but you're, you're excited because you want the project to be really great because as a creative director, you can't, um, you can't not fulfill the vision you have for the project right because right. if you do the whole thing will implode because the project needs a leader the project needs someone who is a visionary and the project needs someone who um doesn't really uh waver on their commitment to what the end result is and I, that's not to say that you're not open for the surprise and the accident and all of that but that's all part of it too right but I just went off on a huge tangent. Still no answer to question. Good. No, it, um, it, I mean you you dove right into what I'm what I uh, what I wanted to go into. So I know when I speak to a lot of friends, they um, for instance they fanboy a lot. And what I always what I always tell people is maybe it's the New York right. When you live in New York, there's a certain aspect of when you're say you're in for instance you're at a bar or you're at a restaurant and you're just interacting with high profile individuals and it feels like just any other setting. And I think uh, you don't you don't experience that in Texas a lot. So I have a lot of friends in Texas that don't um, that don't understand, you know, that we're just all human beings. We're the same human beings. You could have the same interactions as you would with anyone else. Um, but, yeah, I feel I feel that's important. It's important to point out. Yeah. And I think pe I think people are people and people actually want to talk about other things. You know, right. people. If you're a high-level celebrity, you don't really want to talk about... If you're Justin Bieber, you don't necessarily want to talk about your tour. If you're an athlete, you not necessarily need to talk about last, last yesterday's game. Yeah. But what, But the thing that I always... The thing that always was the bond that, that brought us all together is... But they did... They did want... They did really enjoy being in GQ or being on the cover of GQ. It was a trophy for them, right? So they were excited about the process of looking at the clothes and getting, you know, getting well, GQ. Who wouldn't? Right? I mean, getting and tailored, that, fitted. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, that's, that's the magic moment. And, you know, I can't talk to athletes about, you know, a seven point lead from last night's game, if that's even a term, <laughs> but, but I can, um, you know, whether it be LeBron or Russell Westbrook or anyone, it's when they come into the, to the GQ fashion closet or they come into the studio or I come to them with, you know, several racks of clothes. They're like, show me what you want to do. And 
I want to try this all on and they get, they get, they're really, they're really pumped about the, about the experience. Right. So that's, what's fun about it. And then when you work with actors, it's a completely different situation because actors are actors for a certain reason. They don't have to play themselves. Right. So right. you want to give them a character to play. So that's a very, that's very different. Athletes are like, give me the latest Gucci and show me how you want me to wear it and put me in front of white seamless. And you know, I'm going to, kill it right? right but an actor needs a little bit more he needs the photographer and the creative director to be his their directors his or her directors and the more you create a storyline for them the better you're going to um use your time with them would you say that there's a little more humor in working with actors or is it more serious when you're working with actors opposed to an athlete um it can be it can be both but i think athletes definitely come in with a with a, with a lot of gusto, you know, they come in and they can't wait to get to the clothes. They can't wait to hear what you're going to do with them. They're up for anything. And then actors, actors can be the same. Actors can be a little bit, um, introspective sometimes. I did, uh, I remember when I was shooting Ryan Gosling for the cover and Mario Testino was shooting and he was very, um, solemn which I wasn't used to, but probably the third or fourth time I'd worked with him. And we were doing really good pictures and the concept I came up with, which was kind of based on an old film, film noir, uh, film stills and a little bit of Herb Ritz from the eighties. And, you know, I had all the, I had my mood board, but um, I had to go in the dressing room and I was like, Ryan, I, you know, it's like, seems like you're a little bit of funk and, you know, we're doing the cover next. So I just need you to bring your A game. And of course he's going to bring his A game and he did. But before that he said, well, I'm just, I'm trying to stay in character. Cause I'm, I'm uh, filming, I'm doing uh, this week. I'm doing night, night scenes for this movie called drive. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know what drive was, you know? And then of course, <laughs> nine months later when I saw drive is like, okay, You're that's like, why now I understand. That's why. why I understand why. And you know, and I didn't, and I respect that. And I, I, that, that is sometimes you need to know that ahead of time. So you can right. play that into the scenario, right. you know, knowing that he's not, we're not going to get on a trampoline and get big smiles here, you know, but right. that's cool too. Like let's do a badass shoot with Ryan Gosling. Right. That was a good movie, by the way. Um, really I want to go, time. I want to go back to mentorship. You did touch on mentorship right now. You're specifically leading a project with Rachel. Um, yes, Rachel. So I shortly after, um, well, it kind of goes back. It kind of goes back to, let's say when September, okay, September, 2017, uh, we all decide in a cover meeting that we really want to put Colin Kaepernick on the cover. And obviously knowing that this could be a very, uh, polarizing cover and a very exciting cover and a very uh we are all so on board for it and we can't wait to do it but there are kind of some restrictions to it meaning we don't we want the big reveal to be when it lands on the newsstand it was right. he was one of our men of the year covers that year so we wanted to pick we wanted to pick the right photographer right and we also wanted to go to a secret location. So we went and we went up in Har really far up in Harlem and to a really quiet location. We had to chase away a couple of TMZ people. But for the most part, um, before the shoot started, I called Rachel because Rachel is a dear friend of mine. Rachel is a is a 
amazing stylist. We first met on a LeBron shoot, you know, 15 years ago. She was just, she was his stylist. And I always like to get the stylist involved um, in a minimal way. I want, I want it to be, um, I, I definitely want to reach out to them and find out the vibe of the person at that time. Maybe it's like, well, what, you know, what's their size now, if they're fluctuating size, or what are they feel? What, what are they feeling clothes-wise? Just at the very, very early stages, I'm always getting, I'm always kind of locking into an idea that I get immediately, but I just, I always want to call the, the, the stylist. Right. I very rarely invite the stylist on set um, because I want it to be a pure GQ thing, but Rachel and I uh, established very early on a friendship, and so... Years later, when we were doing Colin Kaepernick, I also asked her to join us because he, she styles Colin Kaepernick. Nice. And Colin came to us and said, you know, Rachel and Jim, is it possible for me to wear um, only POC designers? And I said, I think that's a brilliant idea. We have four days. You are not a sample size. Right. And we got to get going, right? And I was... I had my roster and then, which was this, and then Rachel had her roster, which was this. So it was like kind of eye-opening to me that, you know, I didn't have the big roster of POC designers. Right. She had the bigger roster and it became a true collaboration. And I met a lot of talented people through it. And a lot of those people are, you know, big designers now, but what we were able to do, um, totally Colin's idea my idea to make the clothes all black, my idea to make it a little bit 70s feeling. But when we went up into um, the location uptown, we did these amazing pictures and it was a very emotional day. And I got to spend time with Colin. I'd photographed him before for the cover when he was a, in a studio quarterback. What's that? In studio, whenever you guys did the man of the, man of the year or? Well, I photographed him um, for a September cover years ago. And we shot him up in uh, San Francisco. So when he was with the 49ers, is that right? I think so. Okay. Okay. So he was the quarterback of the 49ers. We did it. So I, I knew him. And I remember thinking, it's so, so quiet, you know, and focused and polite person. So when we were reunited for this, we did the inside pictures outside. And yes, we did. We did kind of a makeshift studio for the for the men of the year that year they were all shot in a studio on white we had we had i think four different no we had three different covers so um you know fast forward to this past june and black lives matters and i started calling my black friends and i was like need to have some uncomfortable conversations with you or just just conversations with you to to know like how you know, how you move through the world or, you know, what you feel is missing. And a lot of times people would say, we just, we're not giving the same opportunities, you know, and the, it, it doesn't, they're, they're no less talented. They're just not giving the opportunities. They're not mentored in the same way. So a light bulb went off because I wanted to do something and I want to do something that felt authentic to who I am. And I'm very much into mentoring and I call, I want to do it with, with someone and I, it just, the light bulb went off. I was like, okay, Colin originally introduced me to Black Lives Matter in 2017. Rachel was there. Rachel and I could do this together with the impetus that it started with Colin. So I called her. She's like, I'm on board. And we just put it out there in Instagram. And we started getting these DMs. And we, we wanted people to know that we were 
vetting them that they couldn't just, you know, I don't want anyone, I'm not going to mentor anyone who's just playing in a sandbox and making it a hobby. You know, right. you really have to show me that you're, you're in it for real. But we had, we got so many requests and basically what we had put out there is if you're a black menswear professional in uh, creative direction, fashion design, photography, styling, um, we can help you out. So we have a, we have a, um, think almost 20 people now and we're mentoring these people we we put aside most Mondays to chat with them on zoom and then we really try to hook them into special projects and get them to dream a little bit bigger and it's just been really fulfilling for me the door has been swinging both ways and you know I have a lot of knowledge just over a year the years I've been in the business and I want to, I wanted to, I want to give back. So it's been really a phenomenal sorry, way to a, do it. So it's a long answer, but I'm really passionate about the project. So I um, love it. These designers I, are all, I really, I really invite um, anyone who wants to DM me and, and be part of this. That's magnificent. Thank you, Jim. These designers, they're throughout the United States, correct? They don't have they're to be in the New United York. States. They're male, female. They are just starting. They're established and, str and struggling They're They can be 19. They can be, 50 and you know there's it, it's it's been su super rewarding and you know especially in the design world you know you start off at a designer that is a very lonely place it's like me myself and i right, right. and yeah. you're designing these things and you're jazzed about it you don't really have the money to kind of show your clothes you don't really have the the PR list to know who to show your clothes to. And, you know, you're, you could be sitting on, be the, sitting here, you know, in your, in your studio, your living room, knowing that your clothes, you, you could be the next Virgil, but you know, you don't have anyone that's going to help you. Right? right. So we try to really connect people um, and, and create this kind of spider web of, of, you know, network. But I have to say that the people that are reaching out to us are really genuine about wanting to be successful and paying their dues and working hard. And, you know, sometimes I'm surprised at how um, simple their questions are. And sometimes I'm blown away by how much they already know and they're teaching me. So right. it's a real it's a real back and forth. It's super cool. Of course, of course. I want to go back to uh, the touch of fashion, right? I mean, I didn't want to touch too much on fashion during this call, this, during this podcast, but um, developing one's own sense of style. I had, a, I had a stylist friend here in town last week. She had posted this thing, what lacks in men's fashion today. And I told her, I feel like there's a, there's a lack of individual style. I feel like if I go to an event, whether it's a business casual event, um, right. It's not a black tie event because a black tie event, everyone's dressed the same, but in a business casual event, I usually, I mean, at least here in Texas, everyone's in khakis and a button up and then a, a Navy blazer. How does one develop their own sense of style or what, what do you say to that, Jim? Well, I, I can hear what you're saying and it's, it's very true. Um, pers great personal style is, is a, is, is, is hard to develop if you don't kind of have it in your soul, but if yeah. you have the, if you have the, the want and the need to have better style than the guy standing next to you, I always tell people to find someone who you really respect and copy their style until it becomes yours. So if you like the way Brad Pitt wears his t-shirts or you like the way, you know, David Gaines, uh, 
What's that? David Gandy. David Gandy, or you like the way LeBron's wearing his fedora, whatever it is, then maybe you should start grabbing those elements if that, if you, you know, that, that, and then try to try to make them your own. I mean, we all, we're all kind of product of people who touch us in some way growing, growing up. Um, and even in, in regular life, I mean, I, I learned the power of wearing, wearing a uniform, right? So I always wear black clothes and people are like, oh, in black clothes, you probably never wear green. I was like, it's not that I didn't have those years that I experimented with a lot of fashion, but it's like at one point, I just wanted to put the lab coat on. I just wanted to wear something that made me, because it's a, being a creative director or a stylist or a fashion editor, it's a very different job than someone just looking really good. So a, a, a guy who's like, you know, thinking in your mind of like, who's the most dandy looking guy who's maybe not in the fashion business. And you look at that guy and a lot of people assume like that person would make a good stylist. It's like, no, 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 that person is, is loving his mirror and he is nailing the clothes on himself. But my job is actually to make you look your best. I'm an image maker, right? It's a little more So it's not about me. It's not about me. So it's like, I want my, you know, I want my clothes to be simple and comfortable and I love fashion and I love, you know, the wilder, the better, but I want to be able to put that on someone else and make them look good. But I know what you're saying about going to those events where everybody's dressed the same and men in general have that conundrum. They want to fit in and stand out at the same time. And how do they do that? And that hopefully, they learn some of that from GQ. That's, you know, pretty much my message going forward. I want to make sure that I'm always talking to the real guy. Cause that's, that's my hero. That's the guy, that's right. the guy that I um, look out for. And that's the guy that really, uh, that was the main reason why I did the book because I wanted to go on a book tour and talk to, talk to guys in America and in Europe too. But, it, you know, we did over 20 cities and it was, really eye-opening. I mean, obviously people dress to come to the event, right. but I spent right. time with as many people as I could and, and learned a lot about the idea that I think it was, I think it's a little bit of a myth and it's a little bit of a, uh, a spoiled myth that when you live in New York or LA, those are the only stylish people. But when you go to Grand Rapids, Michigan, or when you go to, um, uh, you know, Miami, or you go to what are some of the small places? Of it? Well, Dallas, Texas, or you go to Atlanta, Georgia, or whatever. You see that people really enjoy dressing up, and they don't want to live in New York or LA. They're fine. They're they're love their city, right? But they want to have a little bit of a fashion flair. Chicago, for example, it's a fashiony city, but it's not New York. It's a different kind of sophisticated culture, right? Right. And this was really eye opening for me. And I thought to myself, I was kicking myself. I was like why didn't I do this 20 years ago? Why didn't I just go on a tour and like talk to guys, right? And I learned so much on my book tour about um, guys' needs and how they shop and how they, how they want to stand out a little bit and how they're really proud to live in their town and be, be amongst, you know, the most stylish. Right. So I, I always say I think the hardest journey for a man is from the shower to the closet because he's going to look at that same blue suit and be like, oh, boy, you know. I'm going to become invisible today, you know, just like everybody else. But that's going to kind of be okay, right? Well, actually, it's not. Even if it's, even if you change your color your pocket square or decide to wear a polo shirt under a suit or decide not to wear the suit at all and try something different, that's 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 the first step in stepping out. Right, right. That book tour um, got diverted by COVID. 
Yeah, we did. We did 26 cities. So we, the only thing I missed out was Houston, Miami. I didn't do Miami actually. Oh, wow. um, uh, New Orleans. We were going to go back to Dallas. We were going to go back to DC. I was going to do some of the Smithsonian. We're going to go back to LA for a few more. Austin, was London, awesome as well. London, London as well. Uh, and all of Asia. Those are the ones that got diverted. I was lucky that the book came out in September. So most of the tour was done before COVID, but it was, um, it was, you know, it was sad not to do the rest of them, but we may, we may start up again. Yeah. I mean, Canada, Vancouver and Montreal, they really want me to come as soon as, as soon as we can. So, so you, have, you have plans to pick up kind of maybe not necessarily where you exactly left off, but course on that trail. Yeah, what I wanted to do and what I'm in the process now is creating a different, I don't know if you ever saw the sizzle that I, that I show before one of my events, but I, I re-edited the sizzle and made it a little bit different. So if I did go back to a city that had some of the same, the same folks, that they would see something different. And I think people like it. It's very, um, it's very important for me to combine... Um, not only like images that give you goosebumps because that's really important, but also humor. Humor is really important to me. Right, right. That's the story I think that um, that people have to tell. Right. There's always a, a humor side to things. It's not just yes. about looking at pictures. It's not just about watching a video. Right. There's something that's to be said behind the scenes. Exactly. Um, that leads me to my last narrative that I wanted to kind of talk to you about, uh, Jim. When you're building and you're cultivating a team and building this lasting legacy that you have had, right? Four decades with GQ. Um, you're, I mean, you have far outreached beyond GQ. You have worked with, you know, just very, very moving people. Um, what's behind building and cultivating that team that helps you deliver that narrative, those messages that you want to deliver, that humor? I mean, the first thing you have to realize, and you realize this as a as a young um, as a young upstart, is that nothing is going to nothing is going to happen by yourself. And you have to hire the best team, and you have to inspire the team, and you have to um, make sure to include them, and make sure to hear hear them, and listen to their voices. And yes, be the final yes no on things, but to really. Um, I mean, my team at GQ was was the best in the business. And I like to bring people in that I know are going to stay with me for a while because I'm going to train them really well. And I'm going to and the training takes a while. You know, right. it's like you're not going to you're not going to get going till about the 18 month period. Right. Because right? you're just going to be in fashion boot camp for a while. But once that once that clicks in, I, you know, I had probably four or five, five people, I, you know, 27 years, 30 years, 22 years, 12 years seven years you know people stayed a long time and a lot of that is a testament to the magazine business and to gq being something that is constantly changing and constantly different and i think what a lot of people don't realize about magazines or maybe they do but they don't realize how much work goes into it is that every three and a half weeks you have to produce a different magazine so that is a lot you know right. because as soon as it's over you just got a bunch of white pages and you have to start over again right and not that you're not working on several issues at the same time, but you better have a pretty good Cracker Jack crew that um, will know how to pull a rabbit out of a hat or 
shoot Brad Pitt tomorrow if, if that's the only day he has and get all the clothes in 24 hours. You almost have to so be on I the had, same wavelength. I had that crew. What's that? You almost have to be on the same wavelength at all points of time. Yeah, and you have to be. I mean, I grew up, you know, from age of 19 on, I grew up um, in the culture of magazines. So for me, it never became, I mean, I was always someone who never said no. So I don't love the word no. So sometimes that makes me, you know, could make me a little bit difficult to work for because it's like, okay, now why is that no? And why can't we, isn't like that store still open or isn't there one, another one that's still open because it's 10 o'clock at night and we have a run through and, you know, we can't find the right color socks or whatever. But I feel um, like you have to be, in the magazine business, you have to embrace the circus and the, and the, you have to be a bit of a deadline junkie. And I've never known anything else. So I'm always like, working on five things in one, pivoting to something else, you know, something crashes and burns and you got to like start over or whatever. So you would hope that the people that you take on with you, which are really the people whose shoulders that you sit on are stand on are really up for it also. Right. And it's fun. It's fun when you find those people who are really there for it. I think a lot of people want to say they worked at GQ, but they're not willing to put the work in or, or realize how we had a lot of talented people that haven't stayed just because they, it, the schedule doesn't fit their personality. Right. So mm -hmm. once you find people and they really love the idea of this really fast paced thing that, you know, you can do a shoot on a Tuesday, the film comes in on a Wednesday, you lay out it on, on a Thursday and it goes to press on a Friday. It's like that could, that can send shivers down a lot of people's right. spine. But, but once you find someone who really, loves the idea of it you can cultivate them that's a that's a great team and i had a great team right yeah there's beauty in having um you know seeing that finished product yeah and knowing you know all the work that went into it you know the endless nights yeah um, exactly the arguments <laughs> um, yes well uh jim i know you got a very busy schedule and i want to thank you for taking you know this hour out of your day to come in talk to us give us some insight I know there's a lot of young people listening that are going to greatly benefit from hearing your voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate it. And you're a fashionable guy. And um, I, I like that. that. I like what you said earlier. I like that you said that you realized you were kind of in a lane that wasn't your passion. Yeah. And yeah. you did something about it. So it doesn't matter if you don't necessarily have to come running out of school knowing what you want. But once it clicks, once you you figure out what that is, um, you need to go for it. So you're, you're a prime example of that. And I really appreciate you having me on board today. Well, I appreciate that, Jim. I look forward to connecting when we're back in Brooklyn, hopefully in the next two months and, um, and catching up then. Okay. Can't wait. All righty, Jim. Thanks take care. Again. All right. Take care. Bye now. Bye, bye. Bye. All right, guys, that was episode 17 of the Guru Presario podcast. If you're tuning in on Spotify or iTunes, make sure you go back to YouTube, there's actually a video portion that follows this podcast with Jim Moore. Um, vice versa, if you're on YouTube and you're watching the video platform and you have to leave the house or you just have to hop on an app, go ahead and hop on Spotify or iTunes or any of the other podcast platforms that are out there and type in Guru Presario Podcast and you're going to find us there. And make sure you subscribe and you follow us there. Other than that, uh, I want to thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you guys on the next episode.